tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The State Senate Ways and Means Committee takes up a bill tomorrow that would allow aspiring social workers to get paid while working to accrue their clinical hours. Currently, those hours are equivalent to an unpaid internship and are important for gaining experience in the field. The bill is part of an effort to make some changes to Hawaii's social services sector to attract more people to work in the field. It's a high-demand area. The University of Hawaii's Thompson School of Social Work and Public Health recently published a new report on the history and the current state of social work in our state entitled Social Work in Hawaii, a Workforce Profile. One of its biggest findings, the need for more social workers. The conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with Sonia Begalke-Bannon in our studios this morning. She's the executive director of the National Association of Social Workers Hawaii Chapter. Can you talk about the findings of the research? Sure. So it's based on conversations that we've had in the social work community for a long time, kind of trying to look at who and what we are. In our state, we have kind of really loose title protection. So if someone is called a social worker in a government job, they don't have to actually have a social work degree. Mm -hmm. There are job series that are called social work. So it's made it really hard to aggregate the data over the years and kind of figure out, you know, who is a social worker, what the average pay is, you know, where we are. So this is a great kind of starting point in figuring all of those things out. So looking at the average salaries, you know, we, we talk a lot with the students about kind of what to expect in the field. So I think this is going to be super helpful in terms of being able to have a great snapshot of, you know, what it looks like, you know, what fields we're in, the kind of base pay is in those fields, and to start being able to work on community-driven and also legislative solutions for the upcoming shortage. You know, we knew roughly based based on kind of federal data that there would be a workforce shortage in, in social work. And we know anecdotally, I mean, I work with a lot of different agencies and companies who will call us and say, hey, I've got these social work jobs and nobody's applying. What's going on? You know, what gives? We used to have tons of applicants. And so it was great to, you know, to really see it presented. So we know we've got between kind of a 12 and 16 percent shortage coming up. And it's different between different islands, but got an aging population. And we have a lot of needs based on what we experienced during the pandemic. So it's great to really be able to see that so that we can, you know, argue for and find the support for increasing, you know, the number of people who go into social work, increasing the base pay for social workers and helping people understand kind of who we are and what we do. I know one of the biggest findings is the need for more social workers in Hawaii. Why do we need more social workers? So we are kind of the everything tool. We're kind of the Leatherman tool of human services. We do kind of everything. You find social workers in mental health practice. You find social workers in the health field, in gerontology, in end-of-life work, school social work. So when you get into master's in social work, you know, you do choose a specification, but that MSW is really a, a gold standard. And, you know, if you start out in one part of the field and, you know, kind of decide you want a career change, you can really take that MSW and continue in a different field. But with that comes, you know, the fact that people will change within the field. So we do need to have a bigger force because we, you know, again, like I mentioned, the aging population, our school population, our kids are stressed. Our kids are so, so stressed in our adolescence. So there is a need for even more mental health care provision now and moving forward. And just, you know, as a society, a recognition, especially here in Hawaii, 
body. Our legislature made mental health one of their big priorities this year and one of the big focuses. So we need more clinicians. How does Hawaii stack up against other states in terms of demand for social services versus the staff available? We already are at that kind of critical tipping point and not having enough staff. Mm-hmm. We have a, more of a shortage than most states. And one of the biggest reasons is the compensation, the pay, right? I mean, most of us are making kind of HUD poverty line kind of cut off for Hawaii. And when you have a master's degree and a lot of student loan debt that's come with you into that, that's hard, right? It's difficult. And it's also a you know, primarily female-driven profession. So kind of like teaching and nursing, historically, social work has been underpaid because it's been a female-heavy profession. And I know the report also takes a look at the history of social work in our state. According to the report, the Ali'i had a hand in creating a uniquely Hawaii approach to social services back in the day. Can you talk a little bit about how the sector has evolved over the years? Sure. You know, Hawaii was revolutionary in kind of in terms of that in our Ali'i. So, you know, Queen Liliokalani was part of one of the founding members of the YWCA, big in, you know, in social services and, you know, the understanding of, you know, what people would need, especially as the country was radically transitioning from an independent nation to uh, occupied territory. So social work has gone from kind of a a school profession or a, you know, kind of a, a social outreach profession to one that is really medically driven, one that is really mental health driven. So, you know, we, we still are in those kind of initial places, you know, the school social workers, the child and family social workers, you know, we have the kind of biggest percentage of child and family workers or have either our social workers or have social work backgrounds. But our field has grown such that many of us are in kind of community organizing and advocacy. If you look at, you know, who leads nonprofits in Hawaii, there's a very heavy percentage of those folks have a master's in social work. Mm-hmm. So it's a field that has kind of grown and expanded. So we do a little bit of everything. How can the social work community, local government, and communities work individually and together to bring in additional social workers in the future? You know, a lot of what we're seeing is disparities in who can get into the field, right? I mean, higher education is expensive. So I think I would love to see more things like support for BIPOC individuals in terms of their education from bachelor's to master's all the way through. We have a bill at the legislature that is coming up for hearing tomorrow, HB 1300, which we're really proud of. It's been one we've been babying along, which would allow for a licensed social worker who is somebody who has finished their master's and has set their exam to start accruing their clinical hours under an LCSW, but actually be able to bill for those hours, so to be remunerated, because what often happens is in that process, when you're getting your 3,000 hours after your master's as you're working towards your clinical, which is the degree or the license at which you can practice independently, you can bill insurance for therapy it's hard to get that experience. A lot of times you can get some of the experience in an agency, but that direct clinical experience, you really need to be working with another clinician. And right now, a lot of people are doing that kind of like for free or in exchange for office work. So again, it tips the balance in terms of who can become a social worker. If you are independently financially stable or come from a family background that has, you know, resources to support you through your process. So I would love to see more funding locally to help people all the way through. 
for the first time ever, we have uh, someone with a social work degree. Ryan Yamane is now heading DHERD. So my personal shout out to Ryan Yamane to look at social work salaries and look at the state jobs, look at the starting pay and, and, you know, let's make it competitive. Let's make it something that's sustainable because most social workers have kind of like their primary job and then maybe have a, a private practice on the side. Everyone has kind of a side hustle because it's an expensive place to live. What kind of skill set or talent or passion makes for a good social worker? For young people that might be listening to this and wondering what direction to take their future in, why would social work be a good career path to follow? So the biggest skill sets or the most important skill sets, empathy, the ability to be a creative problem solver, because often we are helping people find the solutions to their own paths, but you need to know kind of what community resources are out there or, you know, what options are to be someone who, you know, really is, you know, believes in change and believes that, you know, they want to be part of change and is resilient. And if you're not resilient now that you do do the work on yourself to become resilient. So in social work, we absorb a lot of trauma. We absorb a lot of secondary trauma from folks and it's tough. It can be draining. So, you know, knowing your own history, knowing your own trauma history, and and then being willing to do that work on yourself because we have to be whole people. We have to be balanced people to be able to continually kind of take that trauma from someone else and be able to be okay with it, right? To be able to process it, to be able to put it aside, to be able to go home to our families at the end of the day. It's great work. I love what I do. I do both the advocacy work at NASW, and then I have a private practice, and I love doing the micro work, the direct practice work. It is helping people find their own solutions, helping people change, helping, you know, watching someone's life become better. And then on the advocacy side, being able to see something that's, you know, that's a that's a problem and take it to the legislature and make substantive change and, like, really impact my community. It's amazing. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's transformative because, you know, you can sit there for years and, and gripe about an issue and, and then, you know, just kind of spin your wheels. But in social work, we really train people to have this advocacy perspective and that, you know, our code of ethics talks about being an active advocate throughout your whole life, no matter what kind of social work you do. So we really try to encourage people and train people to be able to, you know, connect to you know your city council or the legislature or your your neighborhood board. So to be able to say like, I identify a problem, it's a systemic problem, and how do we fix it? I think with these upcoming generations, you know, millennials, Gen Z, I think there's a lot of them that are looking for meaning in their work and looking to make a change through their work. Does that make you hopeful for the future? Do you feel like the next generations that are coming up are in a good position to contribute to the social work service? Absolutely. There's so much openness and empathy in the generations that are upcoming. I had an experience the other day at my private practice. It's equine therapy program. And I had a group of teenage volunteers, and one of the teenagers came that day with a different name and was introducing themselves with a different name. And this group of like younger teenagers, I mean, kind of like 12 to 14, nobody batted an eyelash, right? With no judgment, with no hesitation, every single one of them went from using this person's previous name to this person's preferred name. No one misgendered this person all day. I mean, the amount of empathy and the ability of young teenagers to be able to just kind of do that seamlessly and just see this person as who they are and who they want to be, it gave me so much hope. I felt so proud of them. Often, you know, even my generation, I'm at the tail end of... Gen X, 
just the kind of snap judgments or the, you know, you should. There is so much less of that. There's so much less shoulding from the younger generations. And I love that. It's, you know, kind of seeing people for who they are and really uplifting them for who they want to be, which is, I mean, that is like, like that is the heart and soul of social work. That was Sonia Begalki-Bannon. She's the executive director of the National Association of Social Workers, Hawaii Chapter. She was talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to the uh, UH report on the state of social work uh, on the conversation page of our website later today. break now to take a pause from our regular programming for a test of the emergency alert system. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Today on The Daily, what the indictment and impending arrest of Donald Trump means for both him and his party. An inside look at how it's playing out. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Excited delirium. That's the subject of our reality check for today. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Jack Truesdale joins us this morning. Hi, Jack. Hi, Catherine. How's it going? Good. So explain to our listeners what this means, because I have to admit, it's not a term that I was super familiar with, and so I actually went and, and looked it up. <laughs> sure. Um, so the term, it kind of doesn't have a solid definition. Um, it's not considered a actual medical diagnosis, but it's been used uh, since the mid-1980s um, as kind of a unhelpful catch-all term that uh, has to do with people who get restrained by police, maybe while they're on drugs, and uh, essentially they have a high heart rate, and um, it doesn't really get much clearer beyond that. <laughs> yeah, well, we, when I looked it up, I, I found, um, I think, agitated delirium and acute delirium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sometimes it's associated with someone being on, you know, meth or cocaine, but um, the a, a review of the literature shows that it's usually used as a sort of... Um, a way to explain why certain people die when they're being restrained by police, um, when in fact 
other causes of death such as um, asphyxiation or uh, a taser might have played a role in that causing some sort of heart condition um, yeah <laughs> well so this term though has been used in cases uh, you know in Hawaii, in Hawaii cases, right? I mean, we, we, we know that a, a lot of um, publicity has been, um, uh, there's been a lot of publicity around the, the George Floyd um, case, that kind of thing mm-hmm. on the mainland. Yeah, there was a man named Aaron Torres um, who died in 2012 here after uh, Honolulu police restrained him. Uh, the cause of death was considered is a very long mouthful, but essentially asphyxia during police restraint uh, due to or as a consequence of a cocaine-induced excited delirium. And now the current medical examiner for Honolulu said that he doesn't use that term really because there's no good definition um, for it. Um, But still, uh, the city ended up settling with the family of the man who died, paying, you know, $1.4 million for it. Uh, about a decade ago. Um, But yeah, there have been a number of other cases where it comes up and um, yeah, it's just hopefully now not going to be used as an excuse for how someone dies in these encounters. So while we've used it before, when did we stop using it? Um, Well, it's still come up, um, but around 2013, Honolulu had a new medical examiner who basically told the others in the medical examiner's office not to use the term because it, you know, wasn't a very well-defined term. It didn't really explain how someone died. Um, so the current medical examiner, Mike Kobayashi, he actually told me um, that there have been some cases where um, people die during a while they're being restrained by police, but. They just don't use the term, even though it might uh, come up as like a, a possible explanation, but it's just not helpful. Mm. Um, and that's actually part of the um, part of the change from this one um, prominent medical organization recently, the National Association of Medical Examiners, saying they would no longer endorse the term. They're basically saying for other medical examiners, instead of using that term as you know, the, the the last word, you should look into the underlying causes of what might have gotten them to that state. So, you know, uh, could be drugs, could be having someone's knee pressed on your neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that the Emmy at the time, I think, um, in 2013, that was a Dr. Christopher Happy, um, mm-hmm. again, who just decided that eh, he wasn't comfortable with it either. Yeah, exactly. Um, just because it, it didn't have solid scientific backing at all. And now we have this national organization that kind of concurs that, yeah, maybe not so, not such a good idea. Right. And that, that came after uh, this one group, uh, Physicians for Human Rights. They put out a, an investigation um, last year, I believe, just examining how this term came about in the 80s. And there were, I think it was, I want to say it was somewhere on the East Coast, uh, there was a, a bunch of black women who died, and this one medical examiner was trying to explain their deaths as saying, oh, it was just excited delirium related mm-hmm. to drug use, when in fact, they're, at least according to 
what I've read about it is there was actually someone going around murdering women, but they didn't really want to put in the extra effort to having to find that person. Wow. Um, okay. And so that term, though, has stuck around since, and then it's really appeared a lot more often since about 2012. Um, and we've seen it come up, like, with George Floyd, one of right. the officers uh, making the arrest, said, like, I am worried about excited delirium or whatever on his body cam. Um, and then uh, quite a quite a number of these other um, police killings, right. it, it gets cited as a possible cause of death instead of you know, use of force. All right. Well, uh, we're glad that uh, your your article clears that up. But thanks so much, Jack. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. All right. That was reporter Jack Truesdale with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read the story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for our trivia test on our backyard quiz. Today we're testing your knowledge of Hawaii's performing artists. One such luminary is Yvonne Ellerman, a singer best known for her number one hit on the Billboard charts, the 1977 disco-era single, If I Can't Have You. Ellerman was discovered at the age of 17 by composer Andrew Lloyd Webber while she was singing in a London club. After hearing her set, he declared that he had discovered Mary Magdalene, a role in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar that would launch her career. She performed on the original recording on Broadway and in the film version of the musical. Her first hit was the musical musical ballad, I Don't Know How to Love Him. Raised in Manoa, Elliman's musical talent was fostered by her parents. She was an only child, and her father was also a musician. Her parents provided music lessons, and when she was 17, her Roosevelt High School teacher encouraged her to go to London after her graduation. Today's Backyard Quiz has two parts. What award was Yvonne Elliman nominated for, and what year did this take place? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR review. Tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. These days, you have so many choices. What sets HPR apart from the rest? Well, we're powered by our community. 94% of our operating budget comes from our community. And through HPR's news and music programs, we're dedicated to uplifting community voices. Join the HPR community with a monthly donation of $10. Donate now at hawaiipublicradio.org. The anthology Flowers of Hawaii and Other Plays by Lee Kataluna is a collection of her work as a playwright. Underscoring all of her writing is a strong current of exploring family ties. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with Kataluna about how she came to understand the world and her journey as a playwright. 
you're an established playwright, obviously, and you write a lot about families and the complexity and the complications of family. So how does your own family react to your plays? Um, it's funny. My, my plays are about complicated families and people that uh, find enduring love regardless <laughs> of, of their family complications. But my own family is not like that. Like, I, I tend to write about big families, and like the family I was born into was just myself and my sister. So I, di I didn't have a lot of siblings. I didn't have cousins like that live nearby. Not a lot of aunties and uncles. So I think it's kind of a wishful thing that I that I write about. You know, this a big extended family. About let's see. I don't know, 15 years ago, I guess, my cousins on my dad's side held a family reunion on Kauai. And they traced back the family like seven generations to one you know, common ancestor and then everybody forward. So that was like hundreds and hundreds of people. And so it was like a, it was like a five day family reunion. And they had all these like awesome events, like show you stuff, Kani Kapila night. And we hiked to where the, like the family um, homestead was. And, wow. Um, um, movies on the beach. It was just, it was an amazing, amazing thing. And that was kind of the first time I felt like, wow, you know, I am part of something big, big, a big connection of people. We're all related. None of us looked alike. It was awesome, <laughs> you know. So I think that has really affected my idea of family. In terms of like how my family reacts, you know, my son is 16 and uh, he's he's an actor. I think he's going to end up in the entertainment business, <laughs> uh, probably as a director. But he's one of the best dramaturgs I know. And so I ask him to read my stuff and give me feedback. He doesn't pull any punches. He just straight up goes, no, I don't buy this. Or what if I think what you meant to do, I mean, you know, he's a he's a nice kid, so he's not mm -hmm. mean about it, but um, he's honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Writers are observant. You must have been observing a lot of the families that you grew up with, I'm guessing. My childhood story is that I was the new kid a lot, always in Hawaii, but my dad because of his job was moved like every three years. So I went to like nine different schools before I graduated high school. So I was always the new kid. And in fact, let's see, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and ninth grade, each year was a different school. I think that new kidness uh, really shapes people. You know, it make, you have to be observant when you're the new kid. You know, you have to figure out how to try to fit in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, who is an, a potential ally, <laughs> who is not. You know, what, what is the language, really? You know, right. it's, it's not English. That's the easy answer, right? There's, e each little community has its own language and kind of its own currency and values and stuff. So I think that's what happened to me, <laughs> I think. That's um, early acting training. Uh, early survival, you know, mm -hmm. I got to be observant. You're a journalist. I did not grow up with a lot of theater influence. It's not like the big traveling shows would come to Baldwin Auditorium. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, my friends, my theater friends who, you know, maybe grew up in New York, um, you know, they have a very different kind of like, that's, that was just what you did. Like you saw the shows and I, I didn't get to see the shows. But somehow I knew I always loved it. I'm not quite sure how that happened. I mean, we didn't even have television in some of the places where I lived. It was just that remote. So I don't know. 
But when a, a, music, a movie musical was on TV, my mother was right there in front of it and like, come on, let's watch this together. So I think that's where it started. As I was heading to high school, I thought, this is going to be my thing. I'm finally going to be in the theater department. This is, I'm going to learn all the things. It's going to, like, I'm going to, you know, fit in. And I walked into the very first, like, drama club meeting. And I just, actors, wow, they're, they're, <laughs> they're really high energy. And I'm like, oh, I'm not that. I was completely, like, overwhelmed and afraid. <laughs> and turned around and left and never went back. But I went to the shows. So it wasn't until I was in my 20s and working uh, in TV news that I was sent to New York for work. And, you know, I finished whatever assignment it was, and then I had time on my hands, so I decided, okay, I got to go do all the New York things. And I went to see uh, a Broadway musical. And strangely, the little voice in my head was telling me, you know, you could write that. Mm. Okay, what musical was uh, it? It happened to be um, <laughs> How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Ah, yeah, okay. Which is it's a pretty fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was an odd thought. And so I, I pretty much dismissed it because I was like, I'm, I must be tired. <laughs> my brain is saying strange things to me. And when I came home from that trip, there in my mailbox was a flyer from Kumukuhua Theater for playwriting classes that summer. Okay. Which was kind of weird. And I hadn't seen, I don't think I had seen anything at Kumu yet. Serendipity. It was calling to me. I got the call. So I wow. talked myself into taking the class and I just was like, oh, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so how does your work as a journalist influence your playwriting or vice versa? The skills that I have learned as a journalist have really, really helped my playwriting. I'm... Uh, prolific. I love a deadline. I hit every deadline. <laughs> I don't get writer's block because you can't get writer's block as a journalist, right. right? I can call people up and ask them questions when I don't know something. I know how to research stuff. Those kind of things, right? And and I'm also pretty like cool with getting not always, but <laughs> but pretty cool about getting feedback. Right. You know, I, I've worked with editors. So somebody says, you know, I don't like this part of your play. I go, OK, mm. <laughs> you know, all right, sure. I can change that. But I don't know if it's scar tissue or what, but that <laughs> it doesn't bother me. I'm very careful about keeping the two separate. Yeah. Particularly right. protecting journalism. Right. Because that's mm-hmm. it this is a different fact. part of your brain in a way. Um, too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to read that like flowery journalism (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not really (laughs) so what is it in what way do you think that you have to see as a playwright to be successful in conveying your story the one that's within you I don't know how to answer that question because because in playwriting you're writing first of all yeah it's the most collaborative art Right. Because I'm just the writer, but I'm not going to be on that stage (laughs) acting stuff out. Right. I'm going to rely on the actors and I'm going to rely on the director and I'm going to rely on the set designer and the costume designer and sound and light. And, you know, there's so much. So it is the most collaborative art. And I think always of the audience, you know, I, I think more about the audience than I do about like expressing myself (laughs) I Mm. I mean you know I I 
that gap has to be, I mean, there can't be a gap between what I, what I intended and what they're getting, right? Mm-hmm. I have to kind of sit with the audience and, and see what they're getting. Between the idea and the play that actually gets produced, not always, but I try to get a lot of feedback mm-hmm. and bridge that gap. Within this anthology, what is the piece that you found the most challenging to write and why? Uh, the most challenging is the Great Kauai Train Robbery, a historical piece. I've been writing quite a few historical pieces recently, um, but that was the first one. And it was particularly difficult because um, he's family. You know, I was writing about my great grandmother's brother was Hawaii's only convicted train robber. And so he died when my dad was in high school. So it's not like, you know, I knew him. By the time I started writing it, my father was kind of the elder for me to turn to. Uh, My uncle didn't have any kids, so there were no direct descendants. So trying to be both careful uh, about historical accuracy, careful about family uh, sensitivities, right? But also like creative, you know, I mean, you have to serve the, the, the dramatic purpose too, right? I'm not mm-hmm. just there telling a history story. I'm there with play. This is entertainment. But I thought about all of us who were there at that family reunion. So I did a lot of emails. I did a lot of, you know, just reaching out to auntie and uncle and talking story and are you cool with this? And it was really like, I think I overthought it because at the end it was like, everybody was cool about it. But I also wanted wanted my uncle, the man I was writing about to be okay with it. You know, and how do you do that when he's long gone? So I had to find out where, uh, where he was buried, which was tricky because he wasn't buried where <laughs> he wasn't buried where you would think he was buried and he um, is the only Hawaiian buried in a Japanese graveyard on the hillside of Lawai. <laughs> so there's all these like tall <laughs> headstones and then my uncle's is kind of a flat headstone he's the only one um, but he was put there because uh, his closest niece lived nearby and she wanted to be able to see him all the time Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, just those kind of things. So, I went to see him. And every time I go to Kauai, I go to see him. And I just sort of, you know, pay my respects and check in and, you know, ask for guidance. And, I mean, you know, the way we, I guess, the way we do, right, with family. We commune with the dead. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say it that way, but, yeah. Just trying to check. Mm Mm-hmm. Are there any final words that you want to say that you think might be valuable for people to know about you as a writer or the contents of this particular book? You know, when I think about this anthology, you know, what is what good is an anthology of plays, right? I mean, it takes the work that was meant for stage, that was meant to be, you know, put on the bodies of actors and the voices of actors, right? It takes it and it puts it in a printed form. But I think that's sort of the, the purpose of gathering together four plays that, you know, were written by a writer who's currently alive. <laughs> if somebody were thinking, okay, how do I write about my family? How do I write about my corner of Hawaii? You know, this book might be like, oh, okay, well, she did it. You know, she's not that fancy. I can do it too. <laughs> 
That was Lee Cataluna discussing her anthology, Flowers of Hawaii and Other Plays. She spoke with HBR Stephanie Hahn about the skills of observation, the challenge of writing about family, and the connection between writer and audience. And heads up, one of her popular plays, The Folks You Meet at Longs, will be a Hanaho show at Kumukahua Theater next month. Support for HPR comes from Hoku's with a new Paris menu inspired by Chef Jonathan Mizukami's recent travels. Locally sourced ingredients are combined with the flavors of France in this three-course meal. Reservations at kahalaresort.com. Medical aid in dying has been approved in Hawaii for the past few years. What are the current proposals to help expand access to this treatment for those who want it? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the potential changes and what that might mean right here in the islands. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Beyond the Music series finale. May Ann Chen conducts excerpts from Arnold Schoenberg's Transfigured Night, April 13th at Studio 909, myhso.org. Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence today to talk about the discovery of a massive black hole, the largest known to date. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the exciting and massive universe around our tiny planet. And as usual, turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. Thrilled to have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers, both Mars and Venus can be seen in the western sky after sunset. Both planets are bright and easy to spot. The moon this week will be passing through its full phase, and so spotting those faint objects in the night sky is going to be tricky. Now, I'm just going to guess, and perhaps I am completely wrong about this, that the very biggest black hole that we know of cannot be seen in our night sky, correct? <laughs> Not with visible light, no. <laughs> Astronomers have found the most massive black hole known to date, weighing it at a whopping 30 billion times the mass of our own sun. It is located in a distant galaxy cluster known as Abel 1201. This monster ultramassive black hole is thought to be at or close to the theoretical limit of how massive a black hole can actually be. Yikes. How do you find a beast like that, Christopher? Well, it may come as a surprise that this discovery was not made using the brand new James Webb Space Telescope, <laughs> but by astronomers using good old Hubble. They used a technique known as gravitational microlensing to discover the black hole, since it's invisible against the background of space. Gravitational microlensing? when something big passes in front of something like a star or a galaxy. 
Indeed. This phenomenon occurs when a massive object passes in front of a light source, be it a star or a galaxy, and this causes the image of the background object to become distorted and warped. It allows us to infer the existence of what we can't actually see. And it's pretty important because we can only really detect black holes when they are consuming things. Exactly, yeah. When material is falling into a black hole, um, be it from a solar system or a star or something else that the black hole is consuming, it causes X-ray emission, which we can spot using space telescopes such as SWIFT. However, when the black hole is just cruising through space, it is essentially invisible. And so gravitational microlensing is an incredibly useful tool to spot these mysterious entities as they travel through the galaxy or galaxies. Sounds cool. Would it be awesome if you had a webcam right on that thing while he was while it was eating stuff would it really look like something or is it in slow motion kind of like watching paint dry <laughs> well no unfortunately the technology to see it live doesn't exist we just see blips of light <laughs> christopher phillips and another uh, fun and enlightening stargazer thank you so much yeah welcome dave and i'm dave lawrence you can find that at hawaiipublicradio.org and we'll catch you next week Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. And now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Our quiz today was about the career of the singer Avon Ellerman. Raised in Manoa, where she still lives today, Ellerman attended Roosevelt High School, where her music teacher noted her talents and advised her to go to London after graduation. There she was discovered at the age of 17 by Andrew Lloyd Webber. He cast her as Mary Magdalene in his musical Jesus Christ Superstar, and so began her career as an international singer and performer. Her biggest hit was the 1970s disco era single written by the Bee Gees, If I Can't Have You, which reached number one on the Billboard charts that year and was featured in the film Saturday Night Fever. Earlier in the show, we asked you what award Yvonne Elliman was nominated for and in what year was that nomination? The answer, in 1994, Elliman was nominated for the Golden Globe Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy for playing Mary Magdalene. Elliman is of Japanese and Irish descent and became the second Asian American to earn that nomination, a fact that even today seems to have been forgotten. But not here on the conversation. And we had no winners. Oh, we stumped you on the quiz today. But if you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. It is round two for Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi's proposed budget. City Council members have sharpened their knives for a second look at what to trim. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. So uh, tomorrow, uh, starting at 9 a.m., Honolulu City Council Budget Committee is going to meet again. Last week, they had a very special uh, meeting held going over the administration's uh, budget. took almost about 10 hours for them to get through it. Uh, And... uh, Budget Chair Radiant Cordero uh, proposed a CD1, which is basically proposed amendments uh, for the administration's budget. Uh, the administration was proposing a $4.5 billion uh, budget, and that's about a 6% increase from last year. Uh, budget Chair Cordero introducing 
2023 uh, budget with 5% to make up for the collective bargaining agreement and things like that to count uh, just to cover employee salaries and benefits. And this is uh, Chair Cordero's uh, reasoning for that recommendation. This is the beginning of this discussion. You'll see a lot of the amendments have been reductions to the last fiscal year, plus 5% in accordance and allowance for the collective bargaining discussions and approval that have occurred. And we also want to allow, especially for us as council members, to provide priorities that our community has proposed to each of us and ensure that we add that into our proposed budget. So they're all about, you know, rising prices are happening. We're seeing the effects of inflation happening, rising housing prices also happening here on the island. And basically, they're just trying to uh, provide some sort of relief, uh, being a little bit more financially responsible and trying to figure out where they can trim the fat in. Obviously, Every year we go through this process, mayor introduces uh, a budget and the council has to deliberate and everything else. And uh, during this process, uh, department heads come in to kind of justify why they need the money or kind of even council members ask what uh, has been done with the last budget uh, year. Obviously, this didn't go very well uh, with Radiant Cordero's um proposal, uh, a lot of department heads uh, said that this would be very, very bad for uh, their departments. They might have to, uh, it would affect uh, salaries a lot. Uh, Andy Kuano, who's the director of budget and fiscal services, kind of took a very uh, broader look at this and kind of went into a little bit of why these cuts are, you know, very uh, drastic. When we don't consider the sweep in the prior year and use the net number, add 5% to that, what happens is the number that we're using as uh, the uh, general budget, if you will, is way too low. And 5% is not enough to cover the collective bargaining increases because besides the across the board increases, depending on the composition of staffing, you know, within any um, department division unit, you also have step increases that are factored into the budget dollars. And, uh, you know, a bigger thing with the city, right, is that the budget um, or the salaries aren't as competitive uh, with the private sector. And obviously that's affecting uh, the shortage that some departments are seeing, especially with, say, for instance, DPP. Right. Uh, and so the city, in order to help retain or even recruit um, potential candidates, are using these uh, salaries and budgets to, you know, increase to be competitive to right. keep these people. And that Department of Planning and Permitting, I mean, that has been just under siege and they really need help. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's even smaller departments at the city, uh, Department of uh, Information Technology, which serves a very important role. Um, usually kind of gets a lot of cuts. Um, and so there was a proposed cut uh, with a DIT. And here's an exchange with uh, Council Chair Tommy Waters and the director, Mark Wong. Uh, Mr. Wong basically said, you know, this would pretty much gut the entire department and services such as, you know, council services or even the neighborhood commission board commissions would suffer because of this. In, in the budget, oh, wait, wait, wait. current That's expense. The question is, we're going back to last year's budget. Yeah, but the right? problem is we have more people but working is that, now. I know, yeah. but we're going back to last year's budget, yes or no? It looks like. Plus 
it does look like right yeah okay so you're saying now you've never seen such drastic cuts before is not the truth um, because I, we're going back to last year's budget I mean let's not play games here so in this let's comment, not play games here in this comment if I'm you want to work with us we'll work I with want you. to work with you let's figure out what you need right what you need if you got warm bodies who are there let us know okay but these comments and you parading people in saying they're not going to have a job that's not fair to us that's not fair to them and it's certainly not fair to people watching on the news right that's not fair and by the way we're thinking about how we're going to provide relief to families yeah and that's why i'm asking you folks in every single department justify it don't make these wild yeah. accusations and so we're going to see a little bit more on the flip side of uh, the revenues that are generated from the city uh, at tomorrow's uh, budget committee meeting. But very much important that uh, the budget and being financially responsible and providing long term relief to families is top of mind for a lot of council members. Right. And the biggie is obviously the uh, setting the rate for real property taxes. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's going to be another long meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. All right. Thanks so much. That was HPR's Kesey Harlow, keeping an eye on the budget process and how it may affect your pocketbook. Look for coverage on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Tomorrow, two, two key cabinet members will get their confirmation hearings. Will they pass muster with the Senate? Do you have any ideas to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. If you miss something and want to listen back to a segment, you can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>